Just a little love note to all of our loyal free cookie listeners and to anyone who might be new to the show. This is an ad-free podcast. And we want to keep it that way. We want to make sure that we can just give you guys the awesome content, the great interviews. and Without the stuff that you have to fast forward. But in order to do that, we need your support. So if you could join us over at patreon.com forward slash free cookies and become a patron of the show, there are many tiers that you can join. You can throw us a dollar, you can do five. And it turns out we're going to start putting some content up for those of you who are hardcore free cookie supporters. We're going to make this worth your while. So if there's some of you out there who just listen to the show, and you feel like, hey, you know what? I could, I could spend two, three bucks a month. Great. If you guys need a little something as incentive, we're going to put some videos up on Patreon that are going to be exclusive to those of you who are free cookie monsters. And I mean, we're talking some good content. Like I'm going to take you inside my sneaker closet, like that kind of content, you know? And I will contribute recipes and perhaps every now and then our dog will give you a soliloquy. So again, that is patreon.com forward slash free cookies. Thank you. Thanks. I'm Catherine Budig. And I'm Kate Fagan. And this is Free Cookies, a humorous podcast filled with thoughtful conversations and offering delicious takeaways. And today. And today we have very important things to discuss at the top of the show. Before we get into this incredibly divisive topic. We just want you all to know that we have Sarah Penner on the show today. She is the author of the runaway debut novel, The Lost Apothecary. Oh God, I said it right. Apothecary is really easy to say wrong. How would you say apothecary wrong? Well, now that I said it right, I don't think I'll be able to say it incorrectly. But try. Apothecary. No. I'm like, was there a lot of ways to say it? Did you go to the apothecary? Apothe. Apothecary? Well, I don't know now, but I swear, four times out of five, I normally don't say it right, but there's just something about a pressure about a microphone in front of me that makes me stand up and do it right. You just rise to the occasion, and you go on, and you do crazy things. like a poison out of the bottle into the nostrils that will hopefully not kill you, but you'll be very impressed with my pronunciation skills. Just the levels you reach saying apothecary right. It's just incredible. Apothecary. But before we get to Sarah... A very interesting conversation has taken place in our lives, and we need to share it with you, free cookie listeners. In, in some ways, it's crowdsourcing, because I can't believe that what we're about to say might actually be a thing, but it could be a thing. Should I set it up, or do you want to set it up? I, you, you look excited. There's a lot of body language but going on. But I always on. have body language. I always am like, for, for free cookies listeners that aren't and there, none of you are seeing me, so it's up for all of you. <laughs> I'm always throwing my hands around a lot. It's true. As we do free cookies. So last night we had a conversation in which it was suggested to us that if I said to a group of friends that we were going for hey, ice let's cream. let's go get ice cream. Yeah. And I ended up taking said group of friends to a location that served soft serve ice cream, you know, flurries, blizzards, twists, all of that that those friends would say that I had led them astray. That if you are going to get ice cream, it only means hard scooped ice cream. Do you think ultimately this is an attack against like fast food ice cream? Is that, because I don't always think of soft serve. Because think of, you know, McDonald's of vanilla cone. Like there's like the classic vanilla like that. There's the Dairy Queen. And I mean, come on, y'all. I know y'all grew up with Dairy Queen. Like the DQ... And that's Blizzards. a separate, but even we're just talking about like a plain old cone or a cup. I mean, I grew up in TCBY, the world of TCBY, which I know is not ice cream. I know it's frozen oh, we, yogurt. Probably all of us our age grew up in the TCBY And I, I would like to just give a shout out to my mother for being the coolest mom who regularly would let me eat TCBY as lunch and occasionally dinner where she'd be like, you know what? Let's just go get TCBY for lunch. And I'd be like, <laughs> wow. Yeah, no, that was not, ha- I mean, I guess it could have happened. I didn't push for that it. That was in line with, Hey, let's have breakfast for dinner. And I'd be yeah, like, yes. that's, that's crazy. Yes. That's crazy talk. <laughs> but I'm thinking maybe this is a regional thing, I, a, a, a Northeastern thing. Cause both of us, but I grew up in Kansas and soft serve is my jam. I yeah. would always pick soft serve over hard scoop, a hard scoop. But I also think Cold Stone Creamery is the most disgusting thing I've ever had. Why do you think it's disgusting? I enjoy the aesthetic of it. Like, I think it's cool watching it get scraped around. <laughs> I'm afraid producer Lindsay is going to, like, fall off her chair right now. I just think it's gross. I don't know. Like, I, I just, if I'm going to eat ice cream, and look, 
everybody calm down. I think hard ice cream is very good when made correctly. I just think still cold creamery. I don't know. Maybe the word creamery. I'm like, it's just, it sounds like there's like, it's, it's cold stone creamery. That's what I said. Stone cold. It was stone oh. cold. Steve Austin hey, is a, a I'm just wrestler trying to make up for the apothecary. <laughs> okay. I can't, you really aced the apothecary. I'm just trying to balance the playing fields. I don't want people to feel uncomfortable around me. Always nailing things. So I guess the question on the table for our listeners, and you can hit us up on Instagram, Free Cookies Podcast on Instagram. You can hit me up on the Gmail, freecookiespodcast at Gmail. Whatever way. That I, Let's make this shit trend. Catherine was, did middle school and high school in Princeton, New Jersey. I grew up in upstate New York. Lindsay, producer Lindsay, what do you think? I know you don't have a mic in front of you, but if, if I said to you, let's go get ice cream, and then we went to like a soft serve stand, would you feel that I had led you astray? Lindsay says yes. Stone cold. Stone, you think it has to be a hard scooped ice cream place? I think soft serve is a totally different animal. But that's what's so great. It's like an upgraded animal. It's like the animal that you you want to to see out in the wild. Like Wait, it would be. You almost did something sensual with your hand there. Well, where because you, soft serve is. Sensual. She's rubbing her face. I don't know what. <laughs> <laughs> What's a patty milk? Wow, so you're, there's a lot of judgment. There's, you're rife with judgment. Okay, okay, okay. I'm just gonna like. Put it, I'm gonna drop the the ace card or what? You're gonna stone cold us with the ace card. That's right. I would just like to point out that if you were to text us, if you were to at mention us, and you wanted to speak to us in emojis, just take a second, type in ice cream in emojis, and take a look at what comes up. When you type in ice cream, that's right. It is a traditional cone with a swirl, which looks like it's probably soft. I'm pretty sure that's not the the thing that gets scraped around on the marble before they mush it into a hard ball and give it to you. I I know that we're making it seem like all scooped ice cream is done at Stone Cold, but it's not. There's also hard ice cream that is made outside of Stone Cold. Sure, sure. But I mean, why would I want hard ice cream? that doesn't have candy mixed in in front of my eyes. Right. I would want that if I was going to get, if I was going to get hard ice cream, but I would assume that ice cream was a soft serve stand I and would I would get, Absolutely. I would get a a vanilla with Oreos mixed in, in a flurry mm. option. And that is, I wouldn't even think of hard ice cream. Why would I even want hard ice cream? Well, and even when we got married, we got married at the back of Leon's in Charleston and way in the they, back, shoved in the way back. In the back. <laughs> Where they keep the storage. The gays, they're just like pushing to the back. <laughs> they have a soft serve machine and it's proper. It's like proper vanilla And everybody soft serve. was fucking fine with that. With rainbow sprinkles. You know what sprinkles, sprinkles? See, it's happening. It's yep. happening. You know what sprinkles like more? Soft. They yeah, want yeah. something slightly soft that they can just seep into. <laughs> Nestle. And then it's, it nestles all next to each other. And they're just like, <laughs> if maybe we sit close to each other, we won't get eaten. Yeah, exactly. So I think we could be wrong. I'm going to say that I, th- I, I don't think we're wrong, but I think the numbers might show if we hear from people that they agree more that soft serve is its own beast and oh, it shouldn't be said. We're going to make more of a stand. No, I personally don't agree with that, but... In our limited data right now, we've got one, two, three, like seven people we've pulled so Ashi far. And loves it's 50-50 right now. Ashi prefers. And it's breaking down geographically. Like my mom, who grew up in the same area I grew up in, she agrees that if I said ice cream and we went to soft serve, it's all the same. All right, y'all. I want to know where my Kansas folk are at. So Midwesterners, speak up. Yep. Soft serve. Those are my DQs. Um. I guess we should bring Sarah on now to talk about her beautiful book, The Lost Apothecary. Designated Ice Cream Consumer. Designated Ice Cream. D-I-C. D-I-C. I'm a D-I-C. But, okay. I'm a designated ice What does that have to do? Soft- what does that have to do with DQ, though? Well, because DQ is kind of like D-H, which is a designated hitter. So. Oh, it's like a baseball mixed with... And you always got ice cream after baseball. In the upside down hard helmet, which you would then keep, and you would have collectors of all the different teams from your little ice cream helmets. Ice cream helmets was soft serve in the ice cream helmet, by the way. <laughs> of course the it best. was. Of course it was. 
Why would you want the Why would you want the ice cream to have to melt in your mouth <laughs> when it could already be kind of melted and you could put it in at the perfect temperature you and texture? You have to pull ice cream out of the freezer and you can't just get into it. You know, no, there's you nothing to, worse than taking wait. a spoon to a hard ice cream and you're like, no, I want you now. Yeah, I mean, hard ice cream is just a joke. And y'all, it's a joke. if you are putting ice cream in the microwave because you can't wait, I mean, respect. Go but get that's, soft serve. That's so gross. Yes, come on. All right, we, we, let's bring Sarah on. She'll appreciate this. I'm sure. Sarah Penner is the New York Times and internationally best-selling author of The Lost Apothecary, which will be translated into more than 30 languages worldwide. She's a graduate of the University of Kansas, Rock Talk Jayhawk, and Sarah spent 13 years in corporate finance and now writes full-time. She and her husband live in St. Petersburg, Florida with their miniature dachshund, Zoe. To learn more, visit sarahpenner.com. Right. So, Sarah, thank you for joining us on the show. We're very excited to talk to you in this unbelievable, successful, beautiful <laughs> story that you've written. And I always like to start by asking for a little elevator pitch, but I'm going to start more selfishly than that because you are a Jayhawk. You yeah. went to the University of Kansas. <laughs> I was born on the campus. Um, did you ever take a class in Hoke Auditorium or Beauty Hall by any chance? Yes. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm like going here. right to it. <laughs> and yes, I did. I took classes in both of those uh, huge auditoriums, actually. And I think that was mostly probably my freshman year, because that's when they put you in all those lectures with like thousands of other yeah, students. But yeah. Yes, I have been thinking back so fondly on my KU days lately uh, because I've done a couple of interviews with the business school and the alumni association. So it's been sort of bringing me back mentally. But that's very cool that you went there as well. Well, Sarah, when you were inside uh, Budig Hall, which maybe at the time you thought was Budig Hall, we're not sure because Catherine, <laughs> Catherine's last name is Budig because her, okay. her dad was the chancellor of Kansas. Oh, and, wow. And so she, and I, I feel like I can tell tales on her. Well, it's not really a tale. It's more, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm boosting, well, boasting, but that's the word, <laughs> boasting, Sarah, <laughs> on Catherine's behalf, um, because she was born and she lived in the chancellor's house on campus. Oh my gosh, yes. that's amazing. Wow. So, Sarah, Lane, baby. You're in the presence of Kansas royalty, <laughs> is what I'm saying. I was Very told cool. that the Jayhawk delivered me, not a stork. It was actually the Jayhawk. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so, okay, there, I, I do want to ask about business school and, and that leap from business school to writing. But let's start. For listeners who have yet to read The Lost Apothecary, can you give us, it's so fun elevator pitch, right? A little summary yep. of what your novel is about. Yes, absolutely. So The Lost Apothecary is about a female apothecary in 18th century London who sells well-disguised poisons to women seeking vengeance on the men who have wronged them. And 200 years later, in present-day London, a woman goes mudlarking along the River Thames, and she finds this small, mysterious apothecary vial, and she soon suspects that she has identified the culprit and the never-solved apothecary murders that haunted London two centuries prior. So we kind of follow these, these two women, and there's a third character in there as well, and ultimately all of their fates collide in a really um, unforeseen and unexpected way. There's so many places to go from here. Okay, first off, when I hear the word apothecary, I say yes. Like, there's a very mm -hmm. instantaneous reaction for me when I hear that word because it just draws so many images right away. And yes. I, I'm a big Victorian England. I know this is Georgian England, this uh -huh. era, but just God, wait, wait, for our listeners slash for me, what's the difference? Yes. So Georgian London would be when King George, uh, the third guy. was on. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> late 1700s and, uh, the Victorian era was Queen Victoria. And that would be through your early 1800s into your, I guess your late turn 1800s. of the century. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Please, so sir, I, sir. I, I love that you, and I've read that you specifically picked the Georgian time because they still did not have, um, the means to, to detect poison yep, and death. Right. 
And, but beyond that, I'm just curious if there was an attraction to that specific time period, just because I feel like in literature so frequently when people write about old England, mm-hmm. it's either we're going back to the Elizabethan era or we're landing in Victorian. Right. So I think this is such a cool Not a lot place. set in the yeah. Georgian era. Yeah. You, you're exactly right. Uh, part of why it appealed to me is because so many people have chosen not to write about this era. I felt like it was untapped and unexplored. And yet it's also so scandalous. Mm-hmm. So there were like loads of brothels. The king himself was crazy. Um, it was pre-industrial revolution. So there were no really machines. It, it, everything was just kind of done by hand. And you had these manual laborers. Uh, and it's just a, it's a really rich, interesting era for me. And I also kind of naturally lean to, um, rebelling a little get a little bit against like what's popular in the publishing industry. And so part of what was appealing to me was that people had not written about it. And I just felt like, you know, I'm going to do something different and untapped. And I actually expected my agent and or my publisher to say like, Sarah, you know, we don't really see this era a lot. It doesn't sell. So can we revise the time frame? But nobody said that to me. They just let me run with it. And those dates are exactly the dates that I chose from day one drafting the story. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Cause even when Catherine was saying like the Georgian period, like that really, I, I'm not a huge, um, English history buff that could have been mm-hmm. the 1400s. It could have been the six. Like in my mind, I was like, or you could have been talking about like the country near Russia. Like I got very confused there. So yes, yeah, yep. definitely picking a time period that I feel like we don't see in pop culture as much. You right. also in your ele- elevator pitch, you mentioned mudlarking and I, and I do, mm-hmm. I have a lot of questions about mudlarking, which I think everyone like, who is, when are we all going to go do it? Like, <laughs> what is it? Is it a spa treatment? Like there's a lot we need to talk about there, but before we get there, can you, can you share with us? Like, I know you graduated from KU from the business school and, and it, from what I've read, you know, spent 14 years in finance. Like, what can you take us through kind of your, your early career and what, what interested you about, you know, business and finance and how you got into that? Yes. So it's funny. There's so much of Caroline in me and Caroline is the present day character for anyone who's not read the story. And she, uh, sort of had some academic exposure to history, but then took a very safe job working for the family business. And I growing up did not like textbook history. In fact, history was easily my least favorite class going through school Um, but what I discovered, you know, after I had started working in finance and very much in the corporate world was that I really liked historical fiction. And a couple of those early authors were Philippa Gregory Mm -hmm. and Ken Follett. And I Mm. realized like, wait a minute, it's not all battles and politicians and the names of well-known men. Like there are actually these really interesting stories about middle-class or lower-class women. And we get to learn what they were wearing and what they were eating and what sorts of things they dealt with in life. And it just brought history home for me. And so I started reading historical fiction voraciously. And then I have always, uh, apart from that, I've always loved uh, writing and I've loved language and I've loved expressing myself through words. So for instance, when I was a child, I liked to journal and then in through high school, I, you know, anytime some, like a boy would break up with me, I would write this terrible poetry. But the (laughs) point was that I was using words to express myself and process feelings. And so in my late twenties, when I was in sort of the middle of my finance career, I just decided like, I want to try to tap into this creative side a little bit more than I ever have. And I want to take it more seriously. And so I, Uh, I enrolled in a couple of online creative writing classes and I loved them. And each week we had assignments where we were required to just write. And then we would work workshop those, uh, those essays. And I absolutely loved it. And so when it came to approaching a full length, uh, a novel length project, I immediately knew it's going to be historical fiction because I loved that as a writer And so that was, I'm sorry, as a reader. And so that was when I started researching. um, I've always been drawn to London. So I started researching just widely uh, London history. And then I kind of honed in on this Georgian era that we spoke about. And really the rest is history. I I actually wrote um, a, a book that was never agented 
never published. No one has ever read it other than just the, the agents I tried to sign with that mm-hmm. didn't like it. But I learned how to how to write through that project, and it now is safely in a bottom drawer, and it will never be resuscitated. Oh. Uh, but then, yeah, then my second book, yeah, right. And then my second book uh, was Lost Apothecary. So, you know, I, I had one practice book under my belt, and then the second one was a huge success. And so, I am also a historical fiction buff. Love it, devour it. You put that on the table, it's mine. But I think what you brought up about it is quite interesting. Like you said, it doesn't have to be about big battles. It doesn't have to be even necessarily about massive historical figures. Mm -hmm. And what I found so interesting about your book was with Nella, her need to write these women's names down, like the importance of making sure that that ledger lived no matter what. And mm-hmm. I, I would just love to hear more about, you know, the the women who are forgotten in history, right? I mean, history, I know this is not exactly the quote, but history favors the bold. Like, we we remember yeah. the people who had the spotlight. Slash the men. It slash yeah. the majority <laughs> of men. And I, I'm just curious, that seems like that was a major driving force behind this character. And I'm just wondering if that was one of the original ideas for her, or if that came as the story came to you. Just right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. So, uh, in terms of her shop only serving women, that was very much an early idea for me. I knew that, you know, I wanted Nella to carry on her mother's legacy of having a place that women could go and have confidential discussions without needing to have a male doctor involved. So, um, that was very much uh, an early idea. But what the piece you just referenced about having the importance of the register and preserving uh, the names of these women, be- knowing that their names would not be recorded anywhere else, that actually came about uh, while revising the book with my editor after we had already sold the story. And this really goes to show just how important the editing and collaboration mm-hmm. process is once you, even after you've sold a book, um, my editor, whose name is Natalie Halleck at HarperCollins, she really just wanted me to unpack and kind of flesh out that element. Like, why doesn't Nella just drop the register in the river to protect all of these women? And so I kind of had to sit back and think, okay, like she serves only women. She does recognize the importance of their individual stories. But then I kind of had to beef that up and amp that up a little bit and really explain. And I think it even says towards the end of the book that uh, to protect them would be to erase them. Meaning like Mm -hmm. if she did burn the register or she dropped it in the river with her, um, that suddenly all of those names are just gone. And all of those stories that her and her mother preserved are just gone as if they never happened. And so that's why it's so important to her to keep the register intact. And she also believes in the integrity of her hidden shop. So when she departs the shop and locks it up that final time, she says that no man will find this place. And she's right um, because no man does. And uh, so, so really that's, that's what she wanted to do was preserve, preserve those names. And then she also believed that her shop was sufficiently well hidden. So she was right. Now, you mentioned in that the dropping in the river, which again brings us back to mudlarking. But mm-hmm. let's again put a pin in it because this is like the this is the, the tease for the listener. Can we go back to just your your story? Right. So graduate from from KU business school, you're in finance and then you start taking creative writing classes. But at least as far as my research has gone on you, Sarah, there was also a mm-hmm. moment where you went to an Elizabeth Gilbert event when she was on tour for her yeah. nonfiction book, Big Magic, about the creative process. Yes. What what was it about that event and listening to Elizabeth Gilbert that, that sparked something in you? Yeah, there was a few different things. So I think one of them being, you know, we all hopefully live very long and, and satisfying lives, but I think there are points in our lives where we're more receptive or open to certain messages. Maybe we're dissatisfied or unfulfilled in a small area. And so we have a conversation with a friend or a therapist or a mentor, and they say something 
that possibly we've heard a thousand times, but it's just the right time this time. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, that really resonates with me. That really um, is something that now I think I'm going to go act on. So part of it was that I was just at this point in my life where I mentioned I was kind of midway through my finance career, late twenties, my husband and I had decided that we didn't want children. And I was just kind of like, Hmm, what, like what now? Um, and then also my father had passed away several months earlier and we were very close. And so I was kind of having like this, um, just thinking about life and like how short it is and, and how we need to get as much out of it as we possibly can. And then Liz Gilbert came out with this book, Big Magic, which is about dealing with fear in the creative process. And so I read it and I absolutely loved it. And then she happened to be on tour and she came to my town where I lived at that time. And she, uh, I was just a few feet away from her in like the first or second row. And she just looked out at the crowd and I had my notebook with me and she said, what is it that you've been dreaming about or thinking about? And if I came back in one year, would you have made any progress towards that or um, would you not? And what, what, do, what would you want your answer to that question to be in one year? And so then she said, if you want to start making progress towards those dreams, like why not now? Why not tomorrow? Why not next week? And it just kind of was that moment in my life where I feel like I was more receptive to that message because that's not that question that she asked isn't anything earth shattering. But for me at that time, I was just in the right place. And so that was right around the time that I decided to enroll in the classes and kind of get going. And I think it was just a few weeks after that, actually, that I started toying with um, at some some novel length ideas and I am forever grateful to her. I've actually tried to send a letter to her via my publisher, but from what I understand, she's basically impossible to get a hold of. So uh, maybe someday I'll have the chance. She listens to, to free cookies, properly. so you're going to be good. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. We need to get you all connected. Um, so uh, did you have... What were your expectations around your debut novel compared to the reality of it? Yeah. So, you know, um, I was surprised when I got an agent, I was over the moon just to get an agent, which for anyone who doesn't really know who the, how the industry works, uh, that's really your first big hurdle. They're the gatekeepers. And once you have an agent that signals to publishers, like the manuscript can hold water. It reads well enough to tell a story and it's not terribly written. So I was surprised when I got an agent and then um, I was surprised when the book sold overnight to Park Row Books. I was surprised within a couple of weeks when it had sold to a dozen countries around the world. It's just, it was like surprise after surprise after surprise. And then what I realized was my publisher, there was a lot of buzz um, in early promotion. So for about a year leading up to the publication date, I could tell they were putting a lot of energy, a lot of resources, and a lot of money into The Lost Apothecary and its promotion. And so then I got nervous because I thought, if this thing comes out on March 2nd, 2021, and doesn't make waves, mm -hmm. I am going to feel um, really terrible that my publisher did all of this. Um, so I remember the week after it came out, when my editor called and said, Sarah, you're an instant New York Times bestseller, I felt like this very um, palpable sense of relief where I was just like, oh, thank God that I didn't let them down. But then since then, like every week, it's just been icing on the cake. And, um, you know, just last night we found out it's on the list for a six week in a row. And so at this point, I almost just laugh. Like, I, I can't believe people, so many people are still reading it and talking about it. And I've received so many messages from women who've said, like, this is making me reevaluate my marriage or my career or helping me get untrapped. And when I hear those things, I'm like, that's even better than a bestseller list. Like, th those are um, those are people's lives. And to think that this story that I told is helping people look inward is just mind-blowing to me. So I, I truly feel like I'm just on cloud nine. And um, I'm so grateful, you know, for everything that has gotten me to this point. Often around beautiful stories or cultural phenomena, 
whether we're watching on TV or we're reading, it motivates people to actually take like a physical journey to the place where this thing has happened. You know, whether mm-hmm. you're thinking, what I'm thinking about like Outlander and and people going to like the Culloden Moor, right? That's what it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. thank you. Culloden. I, I could have said it with a better accent, but <laughs> it, 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 sometimes it can motivate people to actually try to live some small part of what has been written about or what has been seen. And I bring this up because now is the time to talk about mudlarking, dear listener. Oh, we made it. <laughs> oh. Thank God. Um, can you, so what, one, can you explain for our listeners what it is? And also like, what turned you on to mudlarking? Yes. So mudlarking, which is a very strange word, is, uh, it's been around for hundreds of years and it means scrounging around a, uh, basically a body of water. And in this context, we're talking about the River Thames, which runs through central London, but scrounging around the riverbed for interesting or historical artifacts. And the reason why mudlarking is even possible on the River Thames is because every day, twice a day, the river rises 24 feet and then it recedes. So every time that water comes in, it's turning over the riverbed and all of those little cool things that are hidden from hundreds or thousands of years ago are um, are kind of turned over. And so when that tide recedes, these mudlarkers go out and you kind of sift through the pebbles and the rocks and you, you get to keep whatever you find. Um, you do have to have a permit, at least uh, in London, to do this. So I first heard about mudlarking, I think, on Instagram. Like, it's just become more popular <laughs> over the last few years. And people were finding, like, really interesting things and posting pictures of them. And I mentioned earlier that part of why I love historical fiction is because it's the real stories um, or untold stories about real people. And that's exactly what you're finding when you're mudlarking. So you're finding like maybe little hair clips that a child would have worn in Victor- in the Victorian era. Or you might find like a little sewing pen um, from a, a gown or a dress hundreds of years ago. You find often, I didn't find this, but people online find like the sole of a shoe that they can date back to the Tudor era, which is the 1500s. So just like those are things that you're not going to find in textbooks, but you get to hold them in your hand and truly think to yourself, who last wore this or who last held this? And that's just a connection to history that I don't know, short of going to a museum, I don't know where else you're going to find that. Um, it's, it's almost like river archaeology. And uh, so that's why I've always been so um, interested in these Instagrammers who post their, their things that they find every day. And so when I approached the beginning of the story for The Lost Apothecary, I knew that I wanted my present-day character to discover this clue about this apothecary in a really unique and fresh way. And a lot of historical fiction, you find a character who goes up to grandma's attic and she opens up a box and there's a journal and the journal has a, has a clue or someone killed someone else and suddenly she's on a hunt. Uh, but I didn't want grandma's journal in the attic. I wanted like a different way into the story that was just really original And so I kind of then merged these two things. I took mudlarking where you can dig up these old things and then the story that I wanted to tell. And I decided that that was how Caroline was going to kick off her quest was she was going to go on a mudlarking tour and find the vial that way. Am I right in assuming you have gone mudlarking in London? Yes. Yes. Will you please tell us about that experience? What are the coolest things you found? Yeah. Or sometimes, sometimes do people find like nothing? (laughs) So, uh, yes, I did go mudlarking in July of 2019 and that was pre lockdowns. And I had secured my agent at that point. I'd signed with my literary agent. So we were working on revisions together before we tried to sell the book. And Um, I went over the course of several days, I went down to the River Thames several different times. I studied the tide tables and the, um, when the sun was going to be up because it's all like very intricate. It's extremely dangerous to go out when the tide is rising. So you have to find these perfect blocks of time that it makes sense. So I, I went down and each time I'd say I probably spent like two hours and I had some rubber gloves and old tennis shoes. And I found 
really a variety of common things. So I found a lot of pottery fragments um, that have like little gorgeous blue markings on them. I found a fairly decent fragment of a clay pipe. And um, in the 17 and 1800s, clay pipes were as common as cigarettes are today. People would, you would smoke them, the tobacco once, and then you would throw it away. So people would throw them into the river all the time. So I found that. Um, I found some animal bones, which I thought was kind of alarming, but apparently was very common because there was so much livestock in London mm. for hundreds of years. That was their form of transportation. So there's a lot of animal bones in the river. Um, and then I found a few things that I never really could I identify. Um, and I, I actually, for anyone who's listening that's interested in this, if you scroll all the way back to when I first started my Instagram, I posted a picture of the things that I found. And so there, I, one of them kind of looks like the sole of a shoe, but I, I would need to have someone professional tell me what it really was. Um, and to your question about, do people ever find nothing I think if you're out there long enough, you would have to really not be looking very hard to find nothing. Like if you right. just bend down and kind of sift around, you're going to find a piece of pottery or something like that. So it's, it's really not that difficult. It's kind of amazing. Um, okay. So we haven't even touched upon the poison aspect yet, uh-huh. which I don't know how we've made it this far how, without talking how? about poison. Um, the did, so your, book is written from the two different perspectives. We've got modern day happening in London and then the Georgian period. And Mm -hmm. did, when you were cultivating the story in your mind, you know, did you sit down and you're like, I love history and I love poison or, you know, like (laughs) I love poison (laughs) or, you know, I'm just curious where the impetus for this came from. And did the, and also just the inspiration to have the two different time periods. I'm always intrigued Mm -hmm. with authors with how they choose their formats, because I think this easily could have just been a story with Nella. In the Georgian period. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if that was always the plan or if it was an evolution, like you went, you found a clay pipe when you you were like larking and you're like, whoa, 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 I'm (laughs) going to change it now. (laughs) No, that's a great question. So the very first seed that was planted was the apothecary. I wanted this woman who uh, was kind of was at the back of a dark alleyway. Like I very much pictured her apothecary shop. And then I knew I wanted her to service women and help women. And so I naturally thought, okay, um, And I also knew I wanted there to be something sinister about her. So I thought, okay, I've got a a woman who's got something sinister and she wants to help other women. And then it just like a light bulb was like, she's going to provide women with this outlet to exit a bad situation via murder. And so when you've got apothecary and murder, I think Mm. the natural Mm -hmm. thing in between them is poison because so much of what she's working with anyways is going to be poisonous or toxic in nature. And that was one of the things I tried to share through the book is that there really are a lot of things that are um, harmless or even helpful in smaller quantities. But if you've got a lot of it, it can be very dangerous. And so um, I very much just pictured, like it all just started to take shape for me. Her shop, I, I once I went down the poison route, I thought, well, her shop has to now be disguised and hidden behind a wall because otherwise authorities would locate where she's at. Um, so that, that's how that came in, into play. Um, and then I knew that also I wanted her poisons to be very well disguised. So she's not just handing people like an ounce of arsenic. She's instead thinking, how can I most protect my customers and ensure that the authorities don't see what's happening? So I wanted her to, to find really clever ways to disguise her poisons. So that's why in the very first chapter, we see that she's um, putting poison into an egg yolk and then covering it with wax so that no one will suspect that the egg might have this poison in it. Um, so that was that was one of the most fun parts of the whole story was I did so much research on not only toxics and poisonous pla- uh, toxins and poisonous plants, but I also... Um, researched a lot of real-life poisoning cases and homicides that happened in the 1800s and 1900s. So I was able to get a feel for 
uh, the symptoms and what police might look for when they were uh, when they had a suspected poisoning case um, and how the autopsies went and what the punishment was. I, I did all of this research to kind of give me contextual information as I wrote the story. Um, and then, you know, the other choice I had to make at the beginning was uh, in, in fiction, you want the stakes to be as big as possible. And so originally I thought that this might be the story of the apothecary Nella assisting just one customer and, and uh, partaking in just one death. But then I knew I needed to blow out those stakes. And so I decided to make her more of a serial killer. And so that's why you've got those decades of dispensing poison, decades of recording these names in her register and I felt like by the end of the story, that just made the stakes so much bigger because now we're not just talking about one or two guilty people. We're talking about thousands. Um, to your question about the dual timeline element. So it's an interesting question because so many readers have said their favorite part of the story was Nella and Eliza and they could have done without Caroline's narrative altogether, which um, is totally eh, valid. Subjective, <laughs> subjective. <laughs> yeah, like I've I've truly heard every possible um, complaint at this point. And I, I, it's interesting. It really is to sort of hear different people's perspectives. But I think what part of why the present day timeline was and is so important to me is because I just talked about Nella's uh, disguise. So her shop is disguised. Her poisons are disguised. She's really a master of disguise. And so I wanted the, the bailiffs, the men in the story, to never find her because her disguises worked. And then I wanted her disguise to be so effective that it took 200 years before finally someone found her. And if you think mm-hmm. about the title of the book, The Lost Apothecary, when you, when you talk about something being lost, the opposite of that is found. And so that was exactly what I wanted to happen. 200 years later, I wanted a woman to finally uncover this secret. And all those people are long dead. Um, but I wanted her to finally like unveil and unbury this truth and in a way that would also benefit her and change her own life. And so technically your book, I, I don't know if it's labeled as historical fiction or, it, you know, if we're looking at the technicalities of what are, it's labeled underneath, but I would say, you know, magical realism is definitely happening mm-hmm. in this book. And I was wondering when, uh, so this is your book right now is the April pick for my book club, the Inky Phoenix. And, mm-hmm. and one of the comments was, oh, you know, is it witchy? Is it herbally? To which I was like, yes, witchy, (laughs) not in the traditional magical sense, but it it does, as I hear you describe your inspiration for the apothecary and this woman, and, you know, there's this ominous aspect to her, like, was there any temptation to take it in a more fantastical direction? Or did you always want it to kind of because it is a magical. It book. is a finance ba- mm-hmm. business background it, it, we're coming from, though. Here. Finance background, yeah. But I could see it could have slipped quickly into more of that witchy realm had yeah. you chosen to. So when I first started writing it, I envisioned it as basically historical mystery with without a magical element. But the character that we haven't even touched on, who really brings in the magical element, is Eliza, and she's sure. the twelve-year-old customer. And part of why Eliza's story is so important is that she's young and things that are happening in her life, whether it's a butterfly exiting its cocoon or um, her starting her period or her talking to a bookstore owner about how his life was saved when he was an infant. Mm -hmm. She's, she's naive and young enough that she can't really explain some of these things with reason and logic and science. And so she instead chooses to believe what I think a lot of children believe, which is that there's maybe magic at play or an imaginary friend or whatever speculative element you want to put in there. She's the one who sort of brings that possibility open for the reader. And so Eliza was actually the third character that I wrote in the story. She was the last character to come to mind. And similarly, the magical realism element was the the last element to come to mind as well. And it kind of just worked its way organically into the story as I wrote Eliza, because I was able to say, okay, if I was a child 
and X, Y, Z happens. And I didn't know how to explain it because I haven't lived enough life. And my mother told me that she believed in magic. I would probably say that was magic too. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of how that came about. But what's interesting is when the story was written and we were sort of fine tuning revisions, that magical realism piece was my favorite of all of them. And I mean, even the very last sentence or paragraph of the book Caroline is seeing what she thinks are these two women walking down the river. Mm-hmm. And then she decides that her eyes were playing tricks on her. And the, I want the reader to ask, were her eyes playing tricks on her or what are those maybe some ghostly presence? And so I, I, the more I wrote this magical side of things, the more I loved it. And um, I decided that I actually like with future projects, I want to make this historical, um, speculative type thing. That's what I want to keep doing and and keep writing about. So my next story that I'm working on actually has way more of a speculative element than this, uh, than the lost apothecary. So it's kind of neat that it came about organically. I didn't plan it that way. It's almost like it found me and, um, it's something that readers have absolutely loved. So before we, we ask about the gap between, you know, two in book three. I want to go back to book one, the one that's in the drawer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yep. When that one was done and you, I'm assuming went through a lot of rejection, trying to find an agent. Mm-hmm. What, what did you face in that moment? How, how, and how did you come to the conclusion that you were willing to sit down and do it again? So gosh, I've always just been very, stubborn and, um, I don't like the word no. And I've always had really kind of a little bit of a competitive streak, but that's with myself more than other people. Like I just, I, I, I've always wanted to prove to myself that I could do something. And so when I heard no after no, after no, um, I, you know, I, I leaned a lot on the writing community, all of whom has been told no so many times. And I reached out to several published authors and just kind of asked advice, like, how did you keep going? And really, it's just, if you love it enough, if you want it enough, you're going to just have to keep writing. And so, um, I also, so that was the first piece was that I just sort of buckled down and said, like, I'm not going to give up just because I, this first book was a flop. But then I also tried to take the feedback on that first book because some agents did respond back to me and, and kind of, uh, give me clues about why they weren't interested. And the feedback that I got was that the themes in the book, um, there, there were several women in the story who were pitted against one another and, there was sort of a love triangle uh, at the end and these two women kind of went head to head over this man. And they, the, the agents who gave me their feedback said like, that's really not, um, not the things that we're looking for, that the industry is looking for. And we want women to empower one another and to lift one another up. And so obviously the lost apothecary is the complete 180 of that first story because it is so much about women supporting one another and helping women kill their unfaithful husbands. So um, that theme, sure enough, like the industry just immediately, I had five agents offer on the book. So like it was Mm. just immediately clear to me that um, that that theme was was a popular one. A question I never thought I would ask, but was there anything about finance that surprisingly prepared you for the writing life? (laughs) Definitely. Yeah, there was. And in fact, that's the basis of the two interviews I've done with the University of Kansas now is how my career in finance was definitely wrapped up in, uh, in my side gig or my side hustle with writing for so long. And one of the main ways that uh, finance, I think, helped me is that I had a day job for all of these years. And so the only time to write was early morning. So I definitely became um, a member of what we call on Twitter, the 5 a.m. Writers Club, where you basically wake up very early every morning and that's when you get your words in. So I learned discipline. Um, I also feel like there's a lot of critical thinking skills that I carried over from finance to revision, especially. So when you're revising a story, 
you're looking at it from a different angle. It's no longer playful and imaginative. And instead you're asking, is my character arc fully fleshed out? Um, did I carry and weave through a, a certain theme in the right chapters? Do I need to break down this scene and bring it elsewhere? So it's very analytical in that way. And after looking at so many data sets and numbers for 13 years, I definitely can find parallels between those two processes. Uh, and then I think the last thing is just, you know, I, I started working um, in finance when I was 21. And so I was up in front of a lot of leaders and CFOs and CEOs, like at a fairly young age. So I just learned how to communicate like verbally and how to present and um, executive presence. And I've, I've realized over the last six weeks, those are all so yeah. important um, you know, in promoting and publicizing a book as well. All right. I have a kind of weird question, but we're, we're getting close Go to wrapping yeah. up. So th this is the time to <laughs> this get weird. This is where we get weird. So with all, <laughs> like of the, weird. with all of the poisons that you researched, all of the herbs and plants, which How I'm, I'm would sure you kill someone. Well, no, actually <laughs> what poison, if you had to die by one, would you choose to Night, die? By? That's a good question. Yeah, I think oh so. my gosh. That is a good question. If I had to die by one, I mean, I know the one that I would not want to die <laughs> Me by. Too. I think oh, it's in your book. Let's start there. <laughs> The one I would not want to die by is Nux Vomica because it is true that it makes your spine goes rigid, like all your back muscles go rigid and that you have full mm. control over your, um, like your mental faculties. Mm. So you are like feeling all of this happen to you, but you're fully alert. That just sounds terrible. Mm. Um, I, this actually isn't in the book, but I guess if I had to choose one, I would choose cyanide and I, it's not mm. in the book because it was, uh, I don't think it even existed in the late 1700s. But I mean, you know, like guys during, during World War II, right, they would right. have this little, yeah. yeah. And it sounds to me like that's pretty instant. You just sort of collapse. So that would probably be the one that I would choose. Except it always seems like people can't get to their cyanide pills in time, Sarah. It always Never feels like in the movie. they have them in the, the thing in, in the bathroom. It's in between their teeth and they get whapped on the back. And then it, gets, it pops out and then it rolls away and they can't get it. So yeah. it seems like there's an elusive will, quality to cyanide. I will also say the most interesting poison, in my personal opinion, in the book is the, the cantharides beetle. It's the little green beetle I on the front. I love that part of the book. Yeah. And so it's true that they use the, that, uh, this beetle powder in these Parisian brothels in like the 1600s because how did they um, it figure that out? How did they figure know. that out? Science, <laughs> but baby. Like it, apparently, like it is a valid aphrodisiac. It 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 uh, sends blood to all those regions in both <sighs> women and men. And so I'm like so curious, you know, what that would be like, but obviously it's toxic. So you, you don't really want to experiment at home. <laughs> okay. Before, bef so this is the penultimate question, bef you know, before the, the, mm -hmm. the, the, um, what is it? The coupe de gras? What is it when it's like the best of something, you know, our final question that we always, anyway, it's, oh, yeah, man, yeah. I'm just, <laughs> I'm having a you tough time today. You I got it. it. You got it. Uh, what were just a couple, like, is, is, since you did all this research on quote unquote drugs back in the Georgian period, what were, th what were some things that they thought, like they, they presented as remedies that like really were ineffectual? Like, were there quirky things that they did where they'd be like, well, this, if you rub this, uh, you know, dried blueberry on your hoo-ha, it's going to be fine. <laughs> like, what were some remedies they presented as effectual? Yeah. So there, it's funny because when I read back and I like read some of these old research materials and at the, the, just the things that they would say were helpful. I mean, what's interesting is that they, it's, it's like they're quacks. And I don't know if you know what that word means, but it's like they, a quack now would be like someone who's sort of a fraudster and he mm -hmm. says something's going to work and it's not going to work. But back then they weren't like, they really believed that those things would be helpful. Um, so, you know, you'd see all sorts of like plasters that people would put on their skin with just like cornstarch and oil blends. And maybe those were helpful. But I mean, today, like, I, I can't think that they would be. Um, and I'm not in my in my uh, office right now where I've got like all of these these cool journals um, in front of me that I could pull open and, and tell you some. But there are a lot of things like hemlock, for example, 
um, that would be used to and was used to treat what we know now is hypertension, um, blood, you know, issues with your blood pressure. Um, so in very small doses, that actually can lower your blood pressure. But of course, too much of it would um, be very fatal. So um, it's just like if you think about all of the herbs and oils that we have now um, that really, I think, are more for enjoyment sake or, um, you know, just to kind of put you in a good mood. So like peppermint oil, if you run, if you rub that on your inner wrists right now, like, yes, it's going to make you feel alert, but like, I don't think it's making meaningful changes on your mental status. And so back then you would see things like, um, advertisements or what have you, where it's like, um, you know, you're going to access the greater depths of your mind with this special oil and just these wild claims. But in reality, it's like, no, it, it just kind of smells refreshing. And um, so, but, you know, you almost can't blame them because it's like they didn't have the science that we have today. Yeah. Like what do you, because it seems like the only difference between a, a quack and the doctor you're talking about is like intention. Hmm. Yes. Um, that's a good point. So we don't, yep. we don't quite have a name for, well, maybe we do. And I just, it's not top of mind of like doctors who truly believe that what they're prescribing is going to positively affect you. Like I'm assuming they did in right. the 1700s. So we got to come up with a new, a new word for that. I'm sure the yeah. Dutch, the Dutch probably have a word for it already. <laughs> the Scandinavians too. <laughs> like another example that comes to mind, this wasn't in the book, but I mean, everyone's heard of bloodletting and mm-hmm. leeches. Yes. And so, um, you know, they, they thought hundreds of years ago that that would remove certain diseases from your body, but we now know that obviously Could doesn't it? work, but I don't think they did that, you know, with mal intent. So it seems yeah. like if they're going to come up with an ineffectual treatment, like, couldn't it have been like, look, if you eat these chocolate chip cookies, <laughs> that's right. good. like, why did it have to be putting an insect yeah. on your body? Like, I'm like, of all the right. ineffectual <laughs> ways to, to fix me, that is not one I want to try. Which leads us to our last Speaking question. Speaking of cookies, <laughs> not of leeches, but of cookies. <laughs> Sarah Penner, what is your favorite cookie? Oh, I love cookies. I love like every single cookie. Um, my, (laughs) but if I had to choose one, I am kind of a purist and I lean towards like just a basic sugar cookie or shortbread. Um, I, 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 yeah, like I would kind of actually lean away from a chocolate chip cookie. Like Mm -hmm, if you mm -hmm. put a chocolate chip cookie in front of me, I'm going to eat it. But if you have a chocolate chip cookie and like a really chewy, uh, snickerdoodle, I'm probably going to go for the snickerdoodle. Yeah. Or there's that famous Allison Roman cookie where it's like, you know, it's a chocolate chip cookie and, and it's a shortbread. shortbread. Oh, yeah. Sarah, Ooh, have you had those? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's awesome. We'll, we'll send you a recipe for those. My mom has made Perfect. them a few times. It's a shortbread chocolate chip. It's I mean, a shortbread chocolate chip cookie. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> it's everything you want a cookie to be. Any other, any other cookies yeah. you want to throw out there as really good cookies? Um, so there is a lady in New York. Uh, her name is, uh, or her Instagram handle is Casey Bakes. And I, when the book came out, I had her bake cookies for my entire publishing team. And her cookies are like some of the best that I've ever had. They're just like these beautiful sugar cookies. So did you, did you put poison in them? No poison. (laughs) Or just an aphrodisiac. (laughs) Just a pinch, just to get the blood flow. I know my, my publisher might like reconsider things yeah. <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe they would really like it. Who knows? Go all out for your book. Um, right. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for, for your time today, for writing such a beautiful book with such a beautiful cover as well. We didn't, we, I didn't, know, we didn't even cover talk about that. how beautiful the artwork um, is. We got a little carried away with our poisons and our, <laughs> our leeches and stuff, but thank you so much for the time. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun and definitely we'll stay in touch. Absolutely. Congratulations. Bye. Thanks. Bye. All right. That'll do it for this week's episode of free cookies. Please, please chime in on this ice cream situation. My mind is blown. Catherine's mind is blown. Our worldview has been topsy-turvy. So please let us know if it should be topsy-turvy or if we can go right side up again. And we didn't talk about Frosties. I don't think Frosties help our case. So that's why we left them out. What? What? I mean, Frosties are in their own genre, to be fair, but they are also a soft um, substance that comes out (laughs) of an ice cream looking machine. I want to hold that. I would never turn down. I want to hold firm to my position, but 
also, if this were like high school debate class, I might talk to the teacher about switching sides. Because <laughs> I might feel that I had I, I think more of a chance to win the debate if I, do I believe switched the to the hard ice cream side. is definitely I have some thinking. regional. I have some thinking to do. I have some real soul searching to do. Research poison and ice cream consistency. Yes, that's perfect. All right, but thank you for listening. You can follow us at Free Cookies on Instagram. You Free Cookies podcast on Instagram. Please go follow the Inky Phoenix. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts before Catherine gets to the newest review on Apple Podcasts. I must say that we are produced by Lindsay Collins of FNB Radio, who has helped open our eyes as well to this ice cream hard versus soft serve. She's very adamant about the hard ice cream being the real, true, legitimate heir to the ice cream throne. And as always, if you'd like to become a patron of the show, that is what allows us to keep this show advertisement free so you don't have to push the forward button when we talk about products that you don't need or want in your life. So if you've got an extra three bucks, five bucks, I mean, hey, I'm not going to cap it. I'm not going to put a limit on it. But you, you do can what you got to do. Join us and become a patron of the show at patreon.com forward slash free cookies. And we just want to thank you to Kofro123, which I just feel like is, is very appropriate. Fro-yo. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I feel like this is, it's, it's kismet. For the five-star review on Apple Podcasts, thank you. Thank you, Kofro123. Oh, no reading? Is it not where, is it? Worth oh, I, I mean, another great show. I just love, love hearing praise. from so many British writers this season. I think Kobe Starks needs to write a book and be integrated into the rebrand. <laughs> That's a true listener. And if you haven't listened to our last episode, you won't understand that joke. You got to get the show. And if you get the show, then you know when we reference Jurassic Park, it means a little certain something. Just curl up to a little soft serve and catch up on the episodes you haven't listened to yet. All right, bye, y'all. <laughs> <laughs>